0: All right well all hearts being free we will uh we'll turn our attention to the word of god and uh and the thought that I have uh this topic that I have for this morning i guess I should say is true biblical repentance true biblical repentance and uh, What has precipitated a lot of the thoughts behind this is has been interactions with people because this is something that is taught in a way nowadays where the spirit is essentially stripped out of the saving process. Um, they ha- they have made the saving process to be something of a formality, and they have extended the the work of the Holy Spirit to be to everybody at all times, and that's just not biblical. I mean, it's just not biblical. And, uh, and so, with that, I would like just to look this morning. I'm going to start in the twentieth chapter of the book of Acts, of the Apostles, in the seventeenth verse. Acts chapter twenty, and I'm going to start in verse seventeen, and we're going to go down to the twenty-first verse, and then we're going to look at a couple other verses uh, as we get as we explore a little deeper into this topic biblical true biblical repentance starting in Acts 20:17 it says and from Miletus he sent he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church this is this is Paul as he's about to go back to Jerusalem and when they were come he said unto them you know from the first day that i came into Asia After what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'd like to stop there, and then I would like to use a verse from the book of Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. John the Baptist speaking to the the Pharisees who had come down, the the Sadducees and Pharisees who had come down to the baptism there uh, that he was uh, overseeing. And he looked at them and, and the first thing he, he, he said to them was, Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And so just in that in that statement that John made there, he's obviously saying that Upon your head abides the wrath of God, who has warned you to flee from it that you have come down here to be baptized by me. John was authorized by God to be baptized, or to to administer the the ordinance of baptism, I guess I should say. John was authorized by God to do that, and, and that was the extent of it. His baptism was a baptism of repentance uh, and, and People would come before him, and before he would baptize them, in Acts 3 and 8, he looks at them, and he says, Before I'll baptize you, meaning to the the Sadducees and the Pharisees, in the seventh verse who are addressed, whom he said that the wrath of God abided on, and he wanted to know who had warned them to flee from that wrath, because that's what, if you're here and you're lost, that's what you have to flee from. You may say, well, what do I have to be saved from? Because that's the term that gets thrown around in churches. Why do I have to be saved and what is it that I have to be saved from? The answer to both of those questions is the wrath of God. Because if you're not saved the wrath of God abides upon you and eventually you will experience the wrath of God in the day of judgment. And so here we look at this and John says in the 8th verse of the 3rd chapter he says, bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance. In other words he says bring forth fruits which would be evidence I guess you uh, a good word to use there but not evidence in the it's but it's something that has grown up something that has happened uh, a testimony of what has uh, of the change that has occurred in you uh, and uh, and they are, and that they are those fruits are meat for repentance in other words they testify that you've been Saved, right? That's what we always do whenever a baptismal service is to be held. Before we ever get to the baptism, before a person to be declared a proper candidate for baptism, they have to come before the church and they have to relay to the church their testimony of being saved. And the church should listen to that testimony with a discerning ear to make sure that the person who has presented themselves to be saved is, truly has what they have. Uh, John did that. John did that. And, uh, and, and he said, bring forth fruits, meet for repentance. And so you had to have a testimony, and uh, and had to get past that first stage to be, uh, to be able to be baptized. And so that's, that's, uh, that's where that comes into play. Now, I would like for us to kind of, as we start thinking about this, we look back over here at Acts chapter 20 and verse 17. and. And Paul is telling them um, there at Ephesus how has he how he has been with them from the first day that he came into Asia and that he has taught the same doctrine from that very first day up until now. Uh, I've always taught this doctrine. He goes on to say this. He says, I've not held anything back. I've taught you publicly, meaning in public, wherever, where more of the people can hear than just those. And I've taught the same doctrine from house to house. Paul's saying, I've been consistent. In this, and that here is the doctrine testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, because there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, because God has declared all to be under sin. And so, here's what the, the doctrine is. Repentance toward God. Now, here's the question. Why is repentance toward God? Repentance is toward God because God is the one who is the offended party. Now, this is where, as we get into looking at this, this idea uh, of a decision-based regeneration really strips out my opinion, uh, not my opinion, fact, Bible fact. It strips out the fact that you have to acknowledge that God is is offended by your sin. Because all they boil it down to is taking in of information. And then by taking in that information, making a decision that you are going to accept Christ. Folks, I, I, we shouldn't put ourselves in such a haughty position that we are the determiners of if we will accept Christ or not. It's Christ that suffered and died on the cross of Calvary that we might be saved, and so He is the one who has to accept us. Uh, and so here's how He does that with repentance toward God because first and foremost, we have to satisfy the offense toward God, don't we? Next is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these are two transactions that take place simultaneously. When, when you have adequately repented toward God, forgiveness is granted, mercy is granted, faith is granted, it's placed in Jesus Christ, and that person is saved. What's that look like? I think Paul gives us the very best illustration of of what real repentance looks like. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to be in verses 8 through 11, Paul says this, For though I made you sorry with a letter... Now he is obviously referencing the first Corinthian letter that he had sent to them in which he had addressed a lot of problems that were going on in the Corinthian church. Uh, He says, Though I made you sorry with the letter, I do not repent... Now, repent here means he does not regret it. Even though he goes on to say, though I did repent, even though I did regret it, and the reason that he had that regret there, if we'll go over just for a moment to the second chapter of uh, 2 Corinthians, he'll say this, where if I make you sorry, this is in verse 2, where if I make you sorry, who is he then that make me glad? But the same one, but the same which was made sorry by me. So in other words, the the person that he wrote the letter to upbraid uh, or to call out for their sin, uh, that's the same person who has to satisfy it. In this sense, they have to procure, they have to give a heartfelt apology, don't they? They have to really show that they think differently in the matter. Now that's what most of evangelical Christianity has boiled it down to simply thinking differently. But my question is not the thinking differently. I agree that we have to think differently, but it's what causes the person to think differently toward God. What motivates the person to think differently toward God. That's really what we we should address to get to the heart of the matter. And so in verse 4, Paul says this, For out of much affliction and anguish of the heart, I wrote unto you with many tears... Paul didn't take any joy or satisfaction in the fact that he had to write that letter to the church at Corinth. And as a matter of fact, it grieved him mightily. That's the proper proper attitude to take place whenever a church has to carry out any form of discipline in it that it ought to grieve us that we even have to get involved in this process. But that's where Paul finds himself. He finds himself in a place where he has to address these issues because he has the weight of an apostle, uh, of the title of an apostle. And, and so here he writes this letter. Uh, we go back over here to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 8 through 11 after he says, though I did repent, for I perceive, uh, still in verse 8, for I perceived the same opinion Hissle hath made you sorry that is the Greek word lupe meaning to sorrow sorrowful right uh, they it is a very uh, you, you, it's not nice to be called out when you're wrong is it it doesn't make you feel good when you have to when you have to chastise your children it does not make your children feel good does it? You know, it doesn't make me feel good when God has to chastise me either. And he usually does it through Amy. (laughs) That's just the way it is. That's the nature of the relationship. But he says, I didn't make you sorry forever. It was just for a season. Now, we're going to get into the meat and potatoes here. Verse 9, he says, Now I rejoice not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. Right? The sorrow that they had was not a sorrow of self-pity. The sorrow that they had was of a different sort. And that's the type of sorrow that you have to have if you're going to be saved. Right? Getting saved isn't feeling sorry for yourself. That's not what getting saved is. I'm afraid in our churches, in too many instances, we've kind of made getting under conviction to mean feeling sorry for yourself. That's not what it means. What it means is this, that you were made sorry and that your sorrow to repentance, for that you were made sorry after a godly manner. That means you were made sorry according to God, right? Or Sorrowful in a manner that was according to God. You saw that you had offended God and let God down, and because of that, that you sought for forgiveness. That's what we need, isn't it? Remember, we're by nature the children of wrath and what we have to receive is the remission of sins. That's the forgiveness of sins and we can only receive the remissions of sin Uh, that cannot be procured any way other than by blood and the blood that was shed for the remission of our sins was Jesus Christ there on the cross at Calvary. And so here Paul gets into this and he says that you sorrowed after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing for godly sorrow... Right again. This is the word "lupe" here, "theos lupe," lupe, uh, and uh, it says, "Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of." Now, that ver- right there, where it's translated, "not to be repented of," the- another way of looking at that is that it's irrevocable. Right, once you've done it, you've done it. It's not going to change. Let's get into the word that's translated repentance. Because this is where it's going to show what's necessary for true biblical repentance. Remember, he made them sorry after a godly sort. And godly sorrow, in other words, not not sorrowing after the things of the world, but sorrowing after the things of God, works repentance. Let me put that in another way. You have to see yourself as God sees you. And it has to really trouble you. It has to cut you to the heart. That is conviction. That is being judged by the Holy Spirit. The first job of the Holy Spirit, John, I believe it's chapter 16, is that He will judge the world of sin. And He does that or sorry, he will convince the world of sin is what the King James rendering is. And what that means is it's going to convict the world of sin. And you don't just have to be convicted of your sins. You have to be thoroughly convinced of your sins. And it's the Holy Spirit that does that. And it's, it's, it's through that that you start the process of seeking the Lord for the salvation of your soul. See, I'm just called to preach. Just like John the Baptist's ministry was limited in that he was to baptize. He, could, he didn't have uh the laying on of hands, he didn't have the ministry, the, the the application or the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh he was called to baptize. And that was the limit of his ministry. That's why he said, He who comes after me is mightier than I am, whose shoes I'm not worthy to unlatch. Referring to Jesus. For godly sorrow worketh repentance not to be repented of. The Greek word here that's that's interpreted, or that's, that is interpreted or translated, I guess I should say, uh, repentance, is metanoia. Metanoia means this, subjectively compunction for guilt including the reformation by implication the reversal of another's decision. Repentance. Metanoia is taken from another Greek word, which is metaneo, which means to think differently, i.e. to reconsider. And morally, it means to feel compunction. So in both of those words, it means compunctions involved. Compunctions of an emotion. And so I go, okay, well, what's the definition of compunction? According to the Webster's 1828, the definition of compunction is this. It's a pricking of the heart. It's a pricking of the heart. Poignant grief or remorse proceeding forth from a consciousness of guilt. You see, you have to know that your sins have offended God and that the guiltiness of that presently abides on you. But there's one who's died on the cross of Calvary, who died as a vicarious sacrifice for sin, and he said... Let the wrath be on me. The penalty of the law was on Christ. And so you don't have to suffer the penalty of the law. You just have to seek the forgiveness of sins. Uh, And so here he goes on. He says the pain or sorrow, regret of having offended God and incurred His wrath, the sting of the con- the sting of conscience proceeding from a conviction having violated moral duty. In other words, you have to know. This is why it's interpreted. Convinced, you have to be thoroughly convinced of your sin. We oftentimes will say, "Is the Lord knocking on the door of your heart?" To somebody that's lost, that's inaccurate. Have you been sliced to your heart? Have you been pricked in your heart? Acts, we'll look over here in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, uh, we read in verse 37. Uh, we, we read the following. This is Peter at Pentecost. This is the response to Peter's sermon when he just laid out that they were guilty of the crucifixion and the death of Jesus Christ. Uh, they say this is their response to it. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. That verse, that word means that they were cut. In their they were cut to the heart. They were they were completely laid wide open. They were completely laid wide open. They were pricked in their heart. They were cut to their heart. And Peter and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? You know when you when you know you're lost, it is it is a very real thing, isn't it? When you feel the guiltiness uh, uh, follow, uh, when you come to know that you have that you are guilty, not only for having offended God, but that the the death of Christ was necessary because of what you've done, that should be a very real thing for us and for anybody who's not saved. Now here's the problem. To say that it focuses more on the mind and the profession is really to say it, focuses, it that, it, that we're, we're weighing it more on the outward than the inward. Salvation is a, a process that takes place in the heart of man. It does not take place in the mind of man. Man has to have a changing of mind, but it's the compunction that we feel because of sin And the offense that we have committed toward God and that Jesus' death was necessary to placate that wrath, that's what we have to come to grips with. That's what motivates the changing of the mind. You see, the problem is they approach it from a standpoint that man's a robot, that you put you put different information in, you get different information out. He's no more than a computer. But man is much more than a computer because man has a soul, doesn't he? And man has a heart with which he can feel. Now we know that there is a day coming when man will sear his heart and he won't feel. But that feeling is necessary because that's what makes it real, isn't it? I can tell you exactly what it felt like when I knew I was lost. I can tell you what it felt like when I knew I was saved. That's how you know that it's real. When we talk about salvation and a no so salvation, we talk about a salvation that is real to you. The problem is if salvation is merely the result of you reading something and agreeing with it, and eventually formulating it in your mind then it's nothing more than a figment of the imagination it's not real it's not real unless it's down deep inside is it? has to be down deep inside i want to use a couple other verses and then we're we'll, we'll uh we'll try to get to the to close this out matthew chapter 12 verses 41 and 42 now in paul's letter uh if we go back just for a moment and revisit that uh, when he says, He says, But the sorrow of the world worketh death. Then this is to close out verse 10. And then verse 11, he says, "For behold the selfsame thing, that you sorrowed after a godly sort. Listen to this. What carefulness it wrought in you. That word can be translated also diligence. Now I want you to remember this. Hebrews eleven six, For he that cometh to God must first believe that he is... And that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Folks, if, if you don't ever know that you have, that you're guilty before God, how is it possible that you're not, that how, in what world would you ever seek him diligently for salvation? You wouldn't. You have to come to grips with the fact that you are guilty Before God. That's what a lot of the Christian world leaves out today. How do you have a big congregation? You don't tell them they're guilty of their sins before God. You say, hey, Jesus paid for the sins of all mankind. All you got to do is accept Him and you're covered. There's no personal nature in that form of salvation. There's no realness in that form of salvation. What we see here in Matthew, we're going to go with this. Finish up uh, here in Second Corinthians, and I'm going to go Matthew 12, um, and then we'll close out. He says, "What carefulness it wrought in you? What diligence? What clearing of yourselves? Yea, what indignation? What yea, what fear? Yea, what vehement desire? Yea, what zeal? Yea, what revenge? In all things, you have approved yourselves clear in this manner, folks. I just went through what's missing in all of our churches." I just went through what I believe is missing in all of our churches, and I believe that the Bible teaches us this very plainly. Look, you are cleared of yourselves. Look what indignation it brought. Look what fear it brought. Look what vehement desire it brought. The problem that we have today is i got to wonder if a lot of people really have what they say they have because I don't see the desire. I don't see the zeal. He says, "Yea, what zeal it bought, it brought. Yea, what revenge! In all things, you have proved yourselves clear in this matter." Matthew chapter twelve, forty-one and forty-two. And I'm going to close. Remember, I said that they that must, that they that must that want that they that come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him i want to show you that verse again in matthew 12 verse 41 and 42 jesus says that the men of nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it why because they repented at the preaching of jonas what did jonah preach we all know i've touched on this many a time jonah preached judgment didn't he he preached judgment and, that the, and and he preached that they stood in fear of the judgment. Now that's all that he preached because that's the only part of the message that God gave him that he agreed with. But they heard that message. They believed that message. They repented of that message. Um, in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is using metanoia. In Matthew 12, Jesus is using metanoia. And you see the compunction that's brought forth in the response from the, from the Ninevites in that evening. Even their king put on sackcloth and sat in ashes and did mourn over their sin. And that's why Jesus says that the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented Methaneo, they repented not at the preaching of Jonas, or that they that they did, I rather, I misspoke there. They repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. We go on next. That's believing that he is, isn't he? That was a pagan country. They believed that he was. Next up in verse 42, it says, The queen of the south uh, shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Why? Because she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She sought it out, didn't she? you got to understand something. You've got to know that you're in danger of the judgment of God. And if you want to escape it, You've got to come to grips with the guiltiness that is on you, and that the wrath of God abideth on you, and that's what you've got to be saved from. And being convicted of that, then you've got to seek the Lord for forgiveness, don't you? You've got to seek the Lord for mercy. You've got to repent to the Lord. He's the one who determines if you've repented or not. See, it's not something, you do some things in in that you seek the Lord. You seek Him for forgiveness and mercy. But He's the one who determines if you have repented. If I wrong Brother Williams and he lets me know that I've wronged him, and all I give him is a flippant, I'm sorry. Do you think he really believes that I'm sorry for what that action was? No. But if he tells me that, he's, that I've wronged him, and he sees that it really bothers me, and he sees that, my, uh, that, that I'm earnest in my apology to him, and that I'm asking for his forgiveness, he's the one who says, I forgive you. That same, that same transaction happens with God. You have to seek the forgiveness of God, but it's God who forgives. And Jesus said, Behold, a greater than Solomon is here. That's true biblical repentance. That's getting convicted. Understanding that what your sins are. And seeking the Lord for the forgiveness of those sins. That's what you have to do. That's my message this morning. I pray that it will be a blessing. uh, And uh, whoever hears it, that it would certainly uh, be an encouragement to seek the Lord for the salvation of their soul. God never gave, other than Jesus, no man's ever had the uh, ability to forgive sin. Jesus is the one who forgives sin. God forgives sin. It's repentance toward God. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. While we stand and have a song. Number 51.